For John Wilkes Booth, time was ticking down to the moment he knew he would act. At a tavern next to Ford's Theater, he asked for a bottle of whiskey and water. And while stealing his nerve for what he would soon do, there came a voice from the back of the dark and smoky bar. You'll never be the actor your father was. Booth smiled, nodded, and said quietly, When I leave the stage, I will be the most famous man in America. In less than an hour, he would be the most wanted man in America. For this episode, we look back over time's shoulder. From about 10.15 in the evening of April the 14th, 1865, to the sun's rise on the morning of the 26th. This is the story of selected dramatic events within those fateful 13 days. And now, the flight, capture, and killing of this democracy's first presidential assassin. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. At 10.07 on the evening of April 14, 1865, John Wilkes Booth pushed through the front door of a packed Ford's Theater. He said hello to ticket taker John Buckingham and borrowed a bit of his tobacco. Asked to meet a few of his friends, Booth winked and said, Later, John. He bounded upstairs and moved around the back of the second floor dress circle. He slowed to hear the lines on stage. He had about two minutes. Ahead, a white door that led to a hallway, then another door that led into boxes seven and eight. Without interference, Booth pushed open the white door and slipped into darkness. Closing the door, he picked up a pine board he had found earlier that day and wedged it above the doorknob and into a notch in the wall. Now he moved toward the unlocked door to the boxes. A shaft of yellow light streamed through a small peephole. It made a dot on the opposite wall. On stage, Mrs. Mount Chessington had just learned that Asa Trenchard was not a millionaire. There was laughter. Holding his breath, Booth heard her say, Augusta, to your room. And the child answered, Yes, Ma, the nasty beast. Then Mount Chessington continued, I am aware, Mr. Trenchard, that you are not used to the manners of good society. Booth looked through the hole and found the horsehair rocker and the silhouette of a head rising above it. Now, Trenchard, portrayed by Harry Hawk, was on stage alone. To the audience, he proclaimed, Don't know the manners of good society, eh? Booth did not wait for the next line. He turned the doorknob. The door swung inward and he moved forward. Hawk finished. Well, I guess I know enough to turn you inside out, you sockdologizing old man trap. The house roared with laughter. Booth's derringer was behind the president's left ear. He pulled the trigger. Next, a 12-foot drop from the box to the stage below as confusion began to eat away the laughter. 
Then, Mary Todd Lincoln's piercing scream. The confusion and human nature played right into Booth's hands. Crossing the stage, he made good his escape. Only one tried to stop him. Back in the alley behind Ford's, Major Joseph B. Stewart grabbed at and narrowly missed the reins of Booth's mare as he turned to bolt away. Back in Ford's, utter chaos. For the family of John Wilkes Booth, now was cast a long, dark shadow. In Cincinnati, when Junius Booth Jr. heard of his younger brother's deed, he had just finished The Merchant of Venice. He barricaded himself in his hotel room, paced the floor, and pulled at his hair like a man deranged. In Boston, another older brother, Edwin, learned when a servant tearfully handed him his morning paper. The assassin's sister, Asia, pregnant with twins, was stoic. His mother, Mary Ann, devastated. Now their brother, her son, was on the run. At 11.40 p.m., about an hour and 25 minutes after his deed, at the low wooden drawbridge that ran across the eastern branch of the Potomac, the sergeant of the guard was called out. There, southeast of the domed Capitol building, he questioned a man on horseback who wanted out of the city. The rider was calm, but Silas T. Cobb noted his horse had been ridden hard. For every question, though, for every question asked, the rider had a ready answer. To the question where he was going, John Wilkes Booth responded, I am going down home, down in Charles. Probed to be more specific, he added, matter-of-factly, I don't live in any town. I live close to Beantown. Cobb said he didn't know the place. Surprised, Booth said, Good God, man, then you never were down there. Cobb shot back. Well, didn't you know, my friend, that is it against the laws to pass here after nine o'clock? Booth said, no, I haven't been in town for some time, and it is new to me. Now there was a pause in the back and forth. The sergeant looked over the man before him closely. Genteel, well-bred, ivory white skin, well-kept hair and nails. It was Cobb who finally broke the silence. What is your object to be in town after nine o'clock when you have so long a road to travel? Booth mentioned that, yes, it was a dark road, but he had waited to make use of the light of the moon. Almost on cue, Cobb turned over his shoulder and a huge moon, only a few days past full, broke clear of the heights in the distance. No inner alarm sounded off in Cobb's head so he decided to allow the rider to cross. Yet he did say, I will let you cross, but I don't know as I ought to. Following regulations, Booth dismounted and walked his horse across the bridge. Almost as soon as Sergeant Cobb returned to the guardhouse, another rider appeared. It was a fellow conspirator, Davy Harold. However, when he was asked to identify himself, he said he was Smith, Questions presented earlier to Booth were now repeated. To where he was going, the young writer said, Home to White Plains. You can't pass. It's past nine o'clock. It is against the rules. To this, the writer asked incredulously, How long have these rules been out? Cobb said for some time. And as he had questioned Booth, 
Why weren't you out of the city before? Harold answered that he had been with a woman on Capitol Hill, and that delayed his departure. Cobb thought, well, since Lee's surrender, there had been a lot of parties in Washington City. War was essentially over. Any threat now to the city or government seemed remote. So again, Cobb allowed a writer to leave the city for Maryland. And then, a short while later, yet another writer. It was John Fletcher, and he asked the questions. Had anyone just crossed on a light roan horse? Cobb said yes, just recently. From the sergeant's description, Fletcher gasped, God, I'm after him. The stableman, in pursuit of Harold, who had ridden off with one of his horses, asked if he might cross to pursue. To that, Cobb said it was fine with him, but if he did, Fletcher would not be able to return to the city until morning. Fletcher didn't want to be out in the country all night, so dejectedly he turned and headed to police headquarters to report a stolen horse. At Surrattsville in Maryland, tavern keeper John M. Lloyd was roused from an alcohol-induced slumber by someone knocking urgently at his door. It was around midnight. In a mental fog, he opened and found Davy Harrell standing in front of him. Nervous and fidgety, Harrell spouted, Make haste and get those things. Even in his groggy state of mind, Lloyd knew exactly what Harold wanted. Prompted earlier that day by Mary Surratt, he was prepared. As he moved to retrieve the items, Harold grabbed a bottle of whiskey. Outside, there was another rider, Booth, the two now united in flight. As Harold passed the bottle up to Booth, who was still astride his mount, Lloyd appeared in the tavern door with a carbine, field glasses, and a box of cartridges. He ducked back inside to get a second carbine, but Booth, whose identity was unknown to Lloyd, announced that he had broken his leg. No need for a second carbine. Without even one, Booth said he could barely keep himself in the saddle. His injury prompted the next question. Is there a surgeon nearby? Lloyd didn't know of one that still practiced in the area. Then, despite his discomfort, Booth seemed eager to share some kind of news. To, I will tell you some news if you want to hear it, Lloyd answered, I am not particular. You can tell me if you think proper. Straightening in his saddle, Booth proclaimed, We have assassinated the president and secretary Seward. Lloyd was dumbstruck. Standing there as if he had heard a noise far too loud, Harold handed him a dollar for the whiskey and told the tavern keeper something like, keep the change. Harold now said emphatically, we must find a doctor somewhere. As Lloyd repeated his earlier answer, there was no one nearby that still practiced. Both men, Harold back in the saddle, turned and raced away. It was about 4 a.m. Saturday, April the 15th, when another man was awakened in the middle of the night by a knock at the door. Dr. Samuel Mudd arose to treat a man whose left leg was swollen, a man that Mudd later testified he did not recognize. In the doctor's defense, Booth was wearing a false beard. Upon examination, Mudd found his patient's fibula broken about two to three inches above his ankle joint. While he treated, 
About 1,000 were in the saddle looking for him, but cold wind and fog hampered their manhunt. Although many were already in southern Maryland, no one was certain where the conspirators actually were, and hysteria created crazed reports. Booth was headed for the Mississippi, for the Chesapeake, for Chicago, Canada. One report had him seen in London. By 1 a.m. of April the 16th, Booth and Harold were at Colonel Samuel Cox's 845-acre farm. Cox said he never left them in his house, but others say he did. Regardless, around dawn, Harold, Booth, and a guide made their way to Zakiah Swamp. With a coal front moving in, a concerned Cox later went to look for the two fugitives and found them shivering in a ditch. Forty miles south of Washington City, and only three from the Potomac, Cox promised to help them get across the river into Virginia. Virginia, the state whose motto was Sick Semper Tyrannus. They were told to hide in nearby woods and wait for someone who would ferry them across. Even as they fled, Booth was eager to know what the world thought of his deed. It wasn't good. The Washington Evening Star recorded, History has on its record no suicidal act so terrible as that committed by the conquered South yesterday through its representative. Even worse in Booth's mind, a Southern paper, the Richmond Whig, wrote, The most appalling, the most deplorable calamity which has ever befallen the people of the United States. Booth was stunned. He had hoped to assassinate the in-his-mind tyrant on the Ides of March, likening Lincoln to Caesar. Instead, since he acted on Good Friday, Lincoln was being compared to Jesus Christ. The assassin was angered when he read that his shot from behind was an act of cowardice. He had to set the record straight. He wrote in his journal, until today, nothing was ever thought of sacrificing to our country's wrongs. For six months, we had worked to capture. But our cause being almost lost, something decisive and great must be done. But its failure was owing to others who did not strike for their country with a heart. I struck boldly, and not as the papers say. I walked with a firm step through a thousand of his friends, was stopped but pushed on. A colonel was at my side. I shouted, sick simper, before I fired. I passed all his pickets, rode 60 miles that night with the bone of my leg tearing the flesh at every jump. I can never repent it, though we hated to kill. Our country owed all her troubles to him, and God simply made me the instrument of his punishment. The country is not what it was. This forced union is not what I have loved. I care not what becomes of me. I have no desire to outlive my country. This night before the deed, I wrote a long article and left it for one of the editors of the National Intelligencer, in which I fully set forth our reasons for our proceedings. By the 20th of April, and with Boone and Harold still at large, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, certain that there were those sheltering the fugitives, issued a proclamation. 
With an offered $100,000 reward, the heat was turned up, and southern Maryland was crawling with troops. Meanwhile, Booth and Harold, with local assistance, prepared to cross the Potomac. They made their attempt in a 12-foot skiff the night of the 20th, 21st, but poor weather, poor visibility, and Union River traffic stopped them. The disappointed fugitives returned to their refuge in Zakaya Swamp. There, Booth made another entry in his diary. Here, an excerpt. After being hunted like a dog through swamps, woods, and last night being chased by gunboats till I was forced to return to Maryland, wet, cold, and starving, with every man's hand against me, I am here in despair. And why? For doing what Brutus was honored for, what made Tell a hero. And yet I, for striking down a greater tyrant than they ever knew, am looked upon as a common cutthroat. My action was purer than either of theirs. Tonight, I will once more try the river with the intent to cross, though I have a greater desire and almost a mind to return to Washington and in a measure clear my name, which I feel I can do. I do not repent the blow I struck. I may before my God but not to man. Although troops were all around, no one pushed their way into the swamp, and though Booth wrote he would try another crossing that night, it would not be until the night of Saturday, April 22nd. This time they were successful. By sunrise of the 23rd, they were on the mystic soil of Virginia, where Booth expected to be regaled as a hero. By now, the two had crafted a story. They were returning soldiers from A.P. Hill's command at Petersburg, and Booth had been wounded by a shell fragment. For assistance, they sought Elizabeth R. Cuisenberry, who kept a safe house for Confederate signal agents, and Dr. Richard H. Stewart, who was reportedly a friend to the cause. Both, however, kept the pair at arm's length, so Booth and Harold had to keep moving. It soon became apparent, and to Booth's great disappointment, that Virginia would not welcome him as he had hoped. By Monday, the 24th, they were at Port Conway on the Rappahannock, and again needed a ferryman. Back in the bereaved capital, a hunch was being played. If indeed Booth and Harold had escaped to Virginia, few had moved to search the so-called Northern Neck area. So orders were issued to 25-year-old Lieutenant Edward P. Doherty to do just that. A Canadian by birth, Doherty was ordered to take men from the 16th New York Cavalry to comb the area. As they mobilized, another Virginian, Sarah Jane Payton, refused Booth and Harold shelter but did suggest they move two miles down the road to a 517-acre spread, the Locust Hill Farm, that belonged to Richard H. Garrett. They did so, and once there, Garrett, his wife, and nine children bought the pair's story and took them in. The youngest girls, Lillian, Cora, and Henrietta, took a liking to Booth, who, while there, used the alias Mr. Boyd. He needed their positive attention because, quite honestly, his spirit was broken. So much so that he commented, If they don't kill me, 
I'll kill myself. While the fugitives had dinner, one of the elder Garrett's, Jack, recently returned from Confederate service, entered and announced that Lincoln had been killed and there was a $140,000 reward. Booth, nonchalantly, wondered why more wasn't offered. Everything seemed fine until they were bedding down. Sons Jack and Will noticed that Booth had two revolvers and a knife tucked in his belt. They wondered why. After several days in the saddle, Doherty and his men were exhausted. He, Detectives Everton Conger, Luther Brian Baker, another detective, and 26 enlisted men of the 16th New York Cavalry had been knocking on doors for a couple of days and nights and had nothing to show for it. Now they feared their transportation, a steamer, would return without them to Washington City. Disheartened, they headed back to the ferry, which would carry them to the north bank of the Rappahannock River. It was there they bumped into a black man, Dick Wilson, who, when asked if he had seen any strangers, said he had seen lots in the last few days. Shown photographs of Booth, Harold, and John Surratt, the son of Mary Surratt, his eyes widened. He recognized two of them. Wilson's employer, William Rollins, confirmed Wilson's claim. Yes, he, too, had seen both Booth and Harold in the last 24 hours. At about 4.30 in the afternoon of April the 25th, Doherty's search now had new life. Told they were at the Garrett farm by one who crossed on the Rappahannock Ferry with them, two hours of hard riding put them at the entrance of the farm. It was after midnight. Made aware of the layout of the place, Doherty had his men open ranks and surround the house. Six or seven men under Corporal Herman Newgarten went to cover a barn which was set off in the distance. All had weapons capped, loaded, and at the ready. Their movement aroused dogs, and their barking roused Richard Garrett. Without clothes and with candle in hand, he emerged to find Doherty, the two detectives and cavalrymen. His stammering answers were not as direct as the questions, and when not only challenged but threatened, a voice came out of the darkness. It was his son, Jack, who approached the porch, still wearing his Confederate uniform. He said, Father, you'd better tell them, for they have a regiment of cavalry here. Jack and his brother Will had been sleeping out in the corn crib, and hearing the threats aimed at their father, Jack demanded to speak with the commanding officer. The son then informed that two men had arrived and hoped to spend the night, but something was not right about them. They were out in the tobacco barn, which was some 200 feet from the house, a structure with wide open slats for curing the tobacco leaves. Doherty grabbed Jack Garrett by the collar and pushed him in the direction of the barn. Outside the locked door, Garrett was told to go inside and bring the two out. Thinking he would be shot if he went in, Jack balked. Detective Baker then said, if you don't, I'll shoot you. Inside, Booth shook Harold awake and whispered they were surrounded. Harold said they should give up, but Booth wouldn't hear of it. I would suffer death first. 
Then Booth pulled Harold to him and in a low voice said, Don't make any noise. Maybe they will go off thinking we are not here. As they whispered, the door to the barn opened. By the light of a candle, they recognized the silhouette of Jack Garrett. Stepping inside, he said, Gentlemen, the cavalry are after you. You are the ones, and you had better give yourselves up. Booth remained perfectly still, but Harold made no attempt to stay hidden. As Garrett repeated the warning, he thought he heard someone lift himself from a pile of hay. Booth barked, You have implicated me. Now it was around 2.30 a.m. Detective Baker shouted, I want you to surrender. If you don't, I will burn the barn down in 15 minutes. The demand surprised Doherty, who was commander of the cavalry detachment, believed he was in charge. But now, without any prior notice or discussion, Baker had taken over. Doherty feared that by flushing the two fugitives out in Bible black darkness, they might use it as a cover for escape. By now, Booth was at the door and demanded the identity of the person who had threatened to set fire to the barn. Asking what the men outside wanted, Booth said, This is a hard case. It may be I am to be taken by friends. To that, Baker answered with silence. After a pause, he ordered Booth to give his weapons to Garrett, then give himself up. Inside, Booth and Harold argued. Harold wanted to surrender. Let me go out and give myself up. Booth's response was immediate. He snapped, No, you shall not do it. They continued to bicker, and fearing for his life, Jack Garrett called for Baker to let him out of the barn. Stalling for time that was no longer his, Booth tried to engage his pursuers into conversation, but Baker cut it short. Standing just outside the barn door, he repeated his threat, and did so now with a new degree of firmness. Give up your arms, or the building will be set on fire. Booth answered, that's rather rough. I am nothing but a cripple. I have but one leg, and you ought to give me a chance for a fair fight. To that, Baker warned, this is no child's play. We are in earnest and shall carry out our threats. We will give you five minutes to consider the matter. Again, Booth tried to draw those outside into conversation, but Baker would have none of it. Booth then said, well, you may prepare a stretcher for me. Throw open your door, draw your men in line, and let's have a fair fight. At this point, Detective Conger had heard enough. He directed Jack Garrett to collect some pine twigs and pile them up against the side of the barn. Garrett left and returned with an armload. Booth heard him placing it and warned, You would better look out there, put no more brush there or someone's going to get hurt. Now he turned his attention back to Baker at the barn's door. In the meantime, Conger continued to force the issue. He collected some hay twisted it into a small braid, put a match to it, and through a wide crack placed it on a pile of hay that was inside. Flames quickly began to lick up the wall. Davy Harold panicked. He blurted, I am going. I don't intend to be burnt alive. And he started for the door. As he did, Booth pulled him back and threatened to kill him if he went any farther. Then, in a loud voice, Booth shouted, Go away from me, you damned coward! Harold began to pull away, but Booth jerked him back, whispering, When you get out, don't tell them the arms I have. Then Booth called out to Baker, Captain, 
There is a man in here who wants to surrender. He is innocent of any crime. That prompted Baker to ask that Harold give up his weapons. And now Booth added, he has no arms. I own and have all the weapons that are here, and he cannot get them. Meanwhile, as flames continued to creep up the barn siding, Harold ran to the locked door, pounded on it, and pleaded, Let me out! Let me out! Door opened, he stumbled out into the night, and immediately taken was led away, searched, and tied to a nearby locust tree. By now, fiery fingers had reached the rafters. Panels of light poured out into the darkness and onto grim faces of men in blue. A few even dared to press close to the slats. For those who did, they could see a silhouetted figure inside, shuffling back and forth with a crutch and Spencer carbine. At that moment, the most wanted man in America. Trapped. Caged. With darting eyes, Booth desperately hoped to find an avenue of escape. Finding none, resistance melted into resignation. From defiance to despair. He dropped his crutch, turned, and limped toward the door. Some ten feet away, one particular soldier watched him. That man held a forty-four Colt revolver. It was Sergeant Boston Corbett. At five-foot-four, a thirty-two-year-old four-year veteran with a military record for outstanding bravery. Though born in London, Thomas H. Corbett had immigrated to the United States at an early age and grew up in Troy, New York. As a young man, he married but was emotionally devastated when he lost his wife and newborn child. With shattered dreams and in deep depression, he moved to New England, where he found religion. To honor the site of his spiritual reawakening, he renamed himself Boston Corbett. Under that umbrella of piety, he grew his hair and beard to look like that of Jesus Christ. His commitment was such that after two prostitutes solicited him, he decided that for the rest of his days, he would rid himself of any future temptation. To do that, he returned to his room, took a pair of scissors, and cut off his testicles. That act required a two-week recovery at Massachusetts General Hospital. During the war, he upbraided an officer who used the Lord's name in vain, and in doing so, was harshly confined. During that time of forced inactivity, he poured himself into reading and study of the Bible. In the first months of 1864, back in active service, he was captured in a clash with Confederate raider John Mosby and was sent to a Confederate POW camp, Andersonville. Surviving that horrific ordeal, he returned to active duty, and as fate would have it, here he was, outside a burning barn, watching John Wilkes Booth act out his final role on his final stage. In that hellish scenario... Corbett watched Booth shuffle toward the door. And in doing so, intentionally or not, we'll never know. Booth raised his carbine. Corbett reacted. With his Colt revolver and no more than 10 feet away, he fired. The 44 caliber slug ripped through Booth's neck from right to left. It plowed through his fourth and fifth cervical vertebrae, and Booth fell face down. Men now rushed in and dragged the wounded assassin some thirty feet away from the roaring flames. On a soft patch of grass they laid him, 
Dozens of eyes peering on the desperately wounded man. Detective Conger noticed that Booth was trying to speak. He put his ear to the dying man's lips. Tell my mother I die for my country. Conger repeated the words and Booth nodded yes. By now the heat from the burning barn was so great they had to move. Booth was carried to Garrett's front porch where he was laid on a mattress. For the next two hours, in a living hell, he was unable to swallow or to clear his throat of fluid. Uncomfortable in any position, he pleaded repeatedly to be shifted, though each time it was accompanied by great pain. He could make himself understood, but only by great effort and in a feeble whisper. No matter, he again got Conger's attention. Again, the detective drew near. Into his ear, Booth whispered, Kill me. Kill me. To that pitiful plea, Conger replied, We don't want to kill you. We want you to get well. And so it went. Like the 16th presidents, now it was a death watch. His captors watched Booth's throat swell, watched his lips turn purple. Eyes darting, he would gasp. His heartbeat fade, flutter, then revive. Detective Baker sat by his side, bathing the wound, waiting for the end. Occasionally, Mrs. Garrett's sister, Lucinda Holloway, spelled him. She, when nobody was looking, snipped a lock of Booth's hair. By now, Dr. Charles Urquhart was on the scene. At first examination, he believed Booth might survive, but then a soldier pointed out that the ball had passed clean through his neck. The doctor changed his prognosis. With an injury to his spinal cord, the wound was mortal. Vital organs were shutting down. Booth was slowly suffocating, but despite it all, he wanted to repeat something, to make something understood. Baker drew near. Booth repeated what he had told Conger earlier. Tell my mother. Tell my mother I did it for my country, that I die for my country. The death watch continued until the first rays of the morning sun found Booth's face, which made him squint. Baker watched the dying man look to his hands. The detective raised them, limp, nearly lifeless. Held in front of his face, John Wilkes Booth looked at them and whispered, Useless. Useless. Then he was gone. It was Wednesday. The 26th of April. Later that same day, some 146 miles to the south, at the Bennett Place near Durham Station, North Carolina, Confederate General Joseph E. Johnston surrendered some 90,000 men to Major General William T. Sherman, numerically the largest of any Confederate surrender. If Appomattox wounded the Confederacy, Bennett Place made it mortal. The man who repeatedly made it clear that he died for his dying country was taken back to Washington City, where his remains photographed, examined, and after finding the initials J.W.B. tattooed on the back of his left hand, positively identified. Later, he was buried secretly in a gun box placed under the floor of the old Washington Penitentiary. He was gone 
but his family and those that conspired with him were still very much alive and trapped in the deadly and tangled web he had spun. His brothers were arrested, and after their release, something quite odd took place. The acting careers of brothers Edwin and Junius actually prospered from their brother's notorious fame. Others were not so fortunate. Of the hundreds arrested in the hysteria that followed the assassination, eight were tried and four paid with their lives. David Harold, Mary Surratt, Louis Payne, and George Atzerat. But more suffered, directly or indirectly, victims of Booth's calculated use of link and association. And there were more. Those not implicated, but personally and permanently affected by his act, most notably Mary Todd Lincoln and her two surviving sons. Then there was the wife and daughter of Secretary of State William Seward, who had been repeatedly stabbed by Louis Payne that same evening of Good Friday. Both Seward's wife and his daughter suffered untimely deaths. And there were more victims, those who willingly or unwillingly came into contact with Booth or were caught up in the mayhem he created that surrounded him. For example, Quisenberry, the lady in Virginia, who even though she hesitated to aid Booth and Harold in their flight, was arrested. Her daughter, so traumatized by her mother's arrest, died soon thereafter. And tragic tentacles found others, creating more sorrow. What of the two soldiers who were accidentally killed while firing salutes during Lincoln's funeral? What of the 87 men who, while searching for Booth and Harold, drowned in the Potomac when two ships collided? What of those who publicly rejoiced when they learned of Lincoln's death and were set upon? are those that during the manhunt bore just enough resemblance to Booth to invite reprisal. Into that tortured lot the aftermath for the families of Hain conspirator Mary Surratt, Dr. Samuel Mudd, who was arrested and imprisoned, Virginian Richard H. Stewart and Samuel Cox, who came close to prosecution. And we add all who, for the rest of their days, suffered because there was the slightest hint of association, of complicity. Indeed, it was poison that oozed retribution from incensed masses. And that very phenomenon moved Herman Melville to write, There is sobbing of the strong and a pall upon the land, but the people in their weeping bear the iron hand. Beware the people weeping when they bear the iron hand. Also, left for us, the great and mighty question, what if? What if Abraham Lincoln had lived? How different reunification and reconstruction might have been? And over 150 years later, how might those possible decisions and conditions would have affected us now? We can apply that probing question, what if, thrice more, to the three presidential assassinations that followed on Saturday, July 2, 1881, in Washington City's Baltimore and Potomac Railroad Station, when frustrated office seeker Charles Coteau 
mortally wounded James A. Garfield. Or at the Pan-American Exposition in Buffalo, the act carried out by anarchist Leon Chukas, when on Friday, September the 6th, 1901, he mortally wounded William McKinley. Or in Dealey Plaza, Dallas, on yet another Friday, the 22nd of November, 1963, when Lee Harvey Oswald assassinated John Fitzgerald Kennedy. From the list of presidential assassins, we return to the first. In time, Booth's brother Edwin was allowed to claim his brother's body. In its third relocation, the remains of John Wilkes Booth were buried in the city of his youth, within the Booth family plot in Baltimore's Green Mount Cemetery. His headstone, unmarked, but today can be easily found by the pennies left atop his marker. Lincoln pennies. John Wilkes Booth died believing he was the embodiment of Brutus. He firmly believed his act was one for freedom, one that struck at tyranny. It may seem odd, but even today, he remains a romantic villain. His personage, though it cast a long shadow, and yes, is dark and mysterious, is strangely inviting. Perhaps that helps to explain a John Wilkes Booth lookalike who, walking the streets of Gettysburg, recounts his story to all who eagerly approach and listen. And perhaps to help us understand why certain ladies pay special attention to his grave on Decoration Day and that his autograph is more valued than the man he assassinated. In retrospect, John Wilkes Booth lived a poem he memorized as a child, Lord Byron's The Jower. He believed himself a Byronic hero, a tyrant slayer, and he spent months, years, indeed a lifetime, crafting that image and persona. And by doing so, as historian Michael W. Kaufman noted in his 2004 work, American Brutus, the first presidential assassin in our nation's history, John Wilkes Booth, accomplished what every actor aspires. He made us all wonder where the play ended and reality began. Since you enjoy the story within history, I would like to introduce you to Threads of the War, personal, truth-inspired flash fiction of the 20th century's war. Emotionally compelling, individual stories from World War I, II, and the wars we keep fighting because of them. Download the latest episode of Threads of the War from your favorite podcast app, and may the lessons of history compel the world toward peace. Ten days had elapsed since Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia had been turned back at Gettysburg. In tandem with the fall of Vicksburg, Mississippi, there was reason for national celebration. But on this day, the 13th of July, 1863, dark and disturbing issues bubbled to the surface. Most noticeably and significantly, in the urban area with the worst disease, mortality, and highest crime rate in the Western world. When next we gather, the story of the worst riots in the history of this republic, the New York City draft riots. 
I hope you'll be with us. This is Fred Kiger. Please continue to be safe, and thank you for listening.